0: Good morning and welcome to Monday mornings with Maddie and Morgan I'm Maddie and I'm Morgan Ooh, happy Monday everybody
1: happy Monday how
0: are, how you? are you today oh well <laughs> I'm good um when this comes out I will have gotten my first COVID vaccine so I'm,
1: oh, I'm pretty pumped. so happy for you and I'm so jealous <laughs> I know I, I like sign up until April nineteenth oh jeez, yeah,
0: yeah, it's a little weird because they schedule the first and second dose like four weeks apart, but, mm-hmm. oh well, um that means <laughs> I'm you excited you
1: can visit me soon.
0: yes, that was one of the like the main things is I'm going out to Utah in May to yeah. visit our good friend Lauren. And I was like, I better be vaccinated. Yeah. (laughs) This is going to be rough. Um,
1: That's how I thinking about hiking in the long trail.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And I mean,
1: vaccinated.
0: Yes. Luckily, I'll be fully vaccinated like a day before I leave. So, (laughs) perfect. Like, fully vaccinated and then like the two weeks after. So, like, fully protected.
1: Yep. Yeah. a okay. My mom got the Johnson and Johnson one, so she was one shot deal.
0: Oh yeah, my mom was trying to switch to that one, but I don't think it, it was just, gonna work. I, it.
1: I, that's just the luck of the draw that she got. I was like, oh, go you. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's very like random which like sites or CVS's and everything have it, but yeah,
1: I think they were like, yeah, we only have like X number for the day. They'll be out soon, and yeah. I'm
0: getting Moderna, because they tell you when you sign up, but. (laughs) So what are we talking about this week, Morgan?
1: So this week, this episode comes out in the last week of March, which is Women's History Month. So this week, we each picked a woman in science to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, and I am appropriately dressed in my Shred the Patriarchy shirt. Nice. You want to go first?
0: Yeah, so this week, I chose Florence Nightingale, who I don't know if anybody has ever heard of her. You've probably heard the name, but you may not know who she actually is. Um, so Florence Nightingale is actually a badass lady nurse, which back in the day, nursing wasn't a huge thing. So <laughs> Florence was born in Florence, Italy. On what? May. Yeah, so <laughs> I didn't really mention it, but her and her sister were both born on their parents' like extended honeymoon around Europe. So her and her sister were both named after the Italian cities that they were born in.
1: Was she a twin or no?
0: No, her sister's like a year older.
1: Oh, wow. Long honeymoon. Good yeah. for them.
0: Very extended honeymoon. And I mean, they came into like a ton of money, so that's probably why. Extended
1: honeymoon where they had the time to make and have two children. (laughs)
0: Literally, I was
1: like, oh, (laughs) okay.
0: Very extended honeymoon. Must be nice. So she was born on May 12th in Florence, Italy of 1820 to a very wealthy British family. Her and her sister were raised in the family's two homes, a summer home in Derbyshire which was called Leahhurst, and a winter home in Hampshire called Embley. Whoa. Yes, everything's got to be super fancy over in Britain. Um, they were homeschooled by their father, but Florence excelled at math and languages and was able to both read and write and also speak pretty well in French, German, Italian, Greek, and Latin, aside from oh, English. Same. Yeah, same. I can totally speak more than seventeen words in both Spanish and French. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but from a front, from a young age, she was like not at all interested in the typical household chores or like the home careers that were typical of women of that time. And um, the Nightingale family was pretty religious. And one night when she was around like 16 or so, she had a dream or a call from God. And this she felt was her, this call she felt was her divine purpose and was meant that she was supposed to become a nurse and help relieve and reduce human suffering. And she told her parents this and they were really not pleased because um, at this time, nursing was not a respectable life choice and considering her social status and her family. But eventually, in 1844, her father allowed her to attend a short nursing program in Germany. And the school was referred to like three different names because it must have changed over time. <laughs> <laughs> but it was commonly referred to both as Institution of Protestant Deaconess at Kaiserworth and the Lutheran Hospital of Pastor Fildner.
1: Both um, very long names. Yeah,
0: and she spent like multiple times there. And this one specific program was a really short program. Then she like studied a bunch of different places all over Europe, off and on. And then, you know, but that was a shorter program. And she ended up attending more school and training in Paris at the Sisters of Mercy, and even more again in England. So in 1853, Florence decided to spread her wings and leave her family for London. She became the superintendent of the Institution for Sick Gentlewomen or Governesses in Distressed Circumstances.
1: <laughs> yeah, the Institution so, for Damsels in Distress. <laughs> essentially, which what does it sound
0: like? But before we talk about more of her work, especially like there and Where else, everywhere else she worked. Um, I quickly want to cover what this was because the name threw me off like a whole lot when I was reading (laughs) about it. (laughs) So the Establishment for gentlewomen During Temporary Illness was opened in March of 1850 by a group of philanthropic women as a nursing home for, edu- for, quote, educated women of moderate means who were temporarily ill but too poor to afford private medical care and too refined to be admitted to a public hospital. And that quote was from a Lost Hospital of London article.
1: Interesting.
0: And the women who stayed were only required to pay a small fee, which, like, depended on what type of room you had. So um, it was higher if you wanted a private room versus a bed in a ward, which was just um, about, like, six or eight beds in, like, a big room that were divided by curtains.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But this hospital was not doing great money-wise because it wasn't being run smoothly So in 1853, the ladies who started the hospital have reached out to my girl Florence to help run this. She said, yes, but only if she was allowed to reorganize the hospital and use the facilities as a teaching hospital for nurses as well. So she made a whole bunch of updates, and these include getting hot water to all the floors of the hospital. She switched grocers and coal suppliers. Updated the kitchen and updated who was allowed to stay there. So she made the hospital non-denominational and allowed wives and daughters of clergymen, military men, and other professionals to stay.
1: Heck, yeah. So, Heck yeah. yeah!
0: Yeah, So she like really just went and like expanded who was allowed to go and like made it more inclusive for everybody, which is nice. I mean, it still was like a woman-only hospital, which probably was needed you know back
1: then. Okay
0: yeah, I'm fine with that. <laughs> and this hospital actually still t- exists today. And is called the Nightingale Hospital. And is very, very different than way back when Florence walked the halls.
1: I sure but, hope
0: so. Oh, yeah. They went through a lot of name changes in for the place that's been around for 125 years. And they made a whole bunch of major changes in the 70s, like 1970s, to be what it is today. But... I have a list of their names from the same article about lost hospitals in London, and I'm mad because I thought they were going to be in chronological order, but they're in alphabetical order, but whatever. So here they are. (laughs) There's like 10 of them at least. So the first one is establishment for gentlewomen during illness, establishment of invalid gentlewomen, Florence Nightingale Hospital for Gentlewomen. Florence Nightingale Hospital for Ladies of Limited Means. Harley Street Home for Sick Governesses. Hospital for Invalid Gentlewomen. Hospital for Sick Governesses. Hospital for Sick Ladies. Institute for Gentlewomen During Illness. Institute for Sick Governesses in Distressed Circumstances, which was the one I first (laughs) said. (laughs) Institute for Care of Sick Gentlewomen. Institution. For the care of sick gentlewomen In distressed circumstances. Invalid gentlewomen's institution. And sanatorium for sick governesses.
1: I really hate the word gentlewoman. Yeah. It just means that
0: they were like an educated woman. And like.
1: Yeah. It just is a mouthful. I like can't.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it makes me think of just like a lady in like a. Olden day like man garb. Just like. <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. Okay, so now back to Flo. So Florence made a whole bunch of updates to the hospital, but she was really not there for that long because of a super fun time called the Crimean War, which I know literally nothing about. And I wasn't about to do research for this because that'll be a thousand years long. But basically, it's just a war between Russia and the Ottoman Empire of Turkey that Britain got involved in as a Turkish ally. And so eventually a British journalist who was one of the first like wartime like journalists, I guess, he reported on the horrible conditions that the troops um, base and their hospitals are like living in. Um, In this journalist report, he describes these conditions and incompetent and ineffective treatment of the soldiers. So the British people had protested and like got a big uproar because their soldiers were being treated so disgustingly and the secretary of war ended up reaching out to florence specifically asking her and some of her nurses to assist in the medical care of these soldiers and she agreed because she's lovely and gathered 30 nurses and they sailed over to save the day as women always do yep (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so when they arrived it was clear that the conditions were way worse than they had been reported on and supplies had been dwindling um, I found a really great quote from the history.com or one of the history.com articles I was reading and they do a great job of describing it so I'm just going to read that quote it says quote the hospital sat on top of a large cesspool which contaminated the water in the hospital building itself the patient lay Patients lay, in their own excrement, on stretchers strewn throughout the hallways. Rodents and bugs scurried past them. The most basic supplies, such as bandages and soap, grew increasingly scarce as the number of ill and wounded steadily increased. Even water needed to be rationed. More soldiers were dying from infectious diseases like typhoid and cholera than from injuries occurred in battle.
1: Yikes.
0: Yeah, so it was bad there these nurses were not welcomed with open arms at all because the doctors did not want to work with lady nurses. What Which is hell? Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah. I guess there was like some bad blood between like with like past experiences having like female nurses that weren't actually trained really well, I guess. But I mean, it's still like, it's funny to me because nursing right now is a majority like female field.
1: Yeah, and well, like, who are you to not want to work at these people that are coming to help yeah, you? Like, they're coming to help you, and but a,
0: it's not good. <laughs> yeah, like you're obviously doing a terrible job. Um, so, <laughs> anyways, the doctors ended up getting over themselves since the number of injured and sick soldiers kept increasing, and they really needed the nurses' help. And Nightingale made huge improvements to the hospital, including sanitation sanitation <laughs> and was able to get supplies that they had desperately needed she spent like all of her time here caring for the soldiers and was even given the name the lady with the lamp since she would walk through the halls of the hospital like all night long carrying a lamp and checking in on the patients and like talking to them sounds like a ghost <laughs> yeah it's like a little creepy I was like oh um, the work she did reduced the hop- hospital's death rate by about two-thirds.
1: Yeah.
0: Statisticians, I can't say that word, um, analyzed mortality data from the soldiers and found that about 16,000 of the 18,000 deaths were not due to battle, but from preventable causes, which is dras- which drastically decreased after implementing proper sanitation techniques. So um, something pretty cool about our girl Flo is that she also created a diagram called the nightingale rose diagram or a coxcomb chart um to show how sanitation worked to decrease preventable de- diseases and to like really just show like how many um diseases were like deaths were attributed to preventable diseases versus like injuries and like other things sustained in battle her diagram also made the stats like really easy for anybody to understand which was great um And this started as sanitation standards in the military as well as other hospitals. Just a quick little note, this was a time when hand-washing was literally not common at all, like, even in hospitals yet. Uh. So, yeah, (laughs) right around this time. In as... um, Simmelweiss discovered that hand washing between patients specifically between him delivering babies <laughs> would like drastically reduce infections and fevers oh so, my god <laughs> yeah so I think that they may have actually like crossed paths a few times but she was huge into sanitation and like being clean and like all that with patients and he started doing that too and so they basically around the same exact time came up with this idea
1: I have a question yes Was this before or after the concept of germ theory? Um, Let me do a quick. Yeah, sorry. (laughs)
0: 1861
1: was germ theory.
0: Yeah. I keep getting different dates. Like this one says 1478,
1: and this one says 1025. Louis Pasteur. Yeah. His, like, work on germ theory. and
0: Yeah, because he, like, all of, like, the Louis, um, the Pasteur postulates and him and yeah, the work exactly. worked a lot together. But, yeah, so that was around the same exact time, basically. Okay,
1: so it wasn't, like, a well-established thing yet.
0: Yeah, it was basically just beginning
1: then. That makes a lot more sense. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, sanitation wasn't, like, a normal, well-thought-through thing, like people didn't wash their hands usually. And also, like, your drinking water was probably really close to your toilet water.
1: Just (laughs) learning that germs existed, so.
0: Yeah, and, like, (laughs) disease transfer. But, yeah. So, (laughs) on top of improving sanitation, she also incorporated patient services and established a standard of care that improved the well-being and mental health of the soldiers. So, I'm just going to quickly list a few of these changes that she made overall. So she made so the kitchen would make appealing food for those with special diets or like restricted diets. They would have she started a laundry system so they would have clean linens and clothing which is important especially like changing linens between patients. Mm -hmm. She brought a classroom slash library area so patients could read. Lovely. Lovely. She brought regular bathing for patients.
1: Yeah. Which is also important.
0: Important to get rid of infections in your wounds.
1: <laughs> and your she also roots.
0: Yeah. And she also like actually sat down with a lot of the different soldiers and helped them write letters home. She was like very huge on like bedside manner and um incorporating like the environment that patients were in to help them heal which was really nice yeah it's all like very wholesome and like whole health related which is like great for the times especially because we still barely do shit like that but
1: (laughs) it kind of seems like no matter where she went she kind of went in got shit done and left
0: (laughs) yeah it was funny because like in one of the i think it was in the britannica article i was reading she they said that like The doctors were really reluctant to, like, let the nurses help, blah, blah, blah. So she just kind of, like, sat back and was like, all right, when you need me, you can ask for help. (laughs)
1: Yes, I love it. Go flow. And then she,
0: like, took charge and was like, all right, here's how we're going to run it. (laughs) So in May of 1855, Florence went on a trip to Crimea and contracted Crimean fever, which I'd never heard of until doing this research So I did a little digging myself, and I read a few, um, like, PubMed journal articles and stuff on it. Um, Basically, and, like, researched her with this, basically because they didn't, like, they couldn't test her for it, obviously. Um, But they think that she may have had contracted the Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, which I think this podcast will kill you has an episode, but they just call it the Congo hemorrhagic fever.
1: I think you're Um, right.
0: Not positive. I didn't double check. Um, But it's also, they think that it was that and or brucellosis, brucellosis, something like that, Um, potentially, which are both um, zoonotic diseases that are either get from a tick or from like unpasteurized milk and other animal products. So they think that she got it from unpasteurized milk. They're not sure if it was both of these things or just one of them obviously. But <laughs> and a few of the articles that I read did say that like since they can be commonly diagnosed at the same time, it's not recommended that they test for both if you're suspected to have this in certain areas, especially because they have similar signs and symptoms, so it might be which is like why it's a little bit harder to determine what she caught. But on her little expedition, she got what they called Crimean fever at the time and it hit her hard. Her recovery was extremely slow since there was no treatment at the time, and it had lasting effects for the like final 25 years of her life until her death in 1910. And this often led her bedridden due to intense pains, but don't worry, she kept pushing on from her badass lady bed.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: So the Treaty of Paris ended the Crimean War in, I think, 1956 or so, and she decided to stick around until all of the hospitals were able to close, and so she basically was, like, one of the last people to leave. And when she got home, she was praised for her help in the war, but as I said, she was not done and would continue to advocate for social reform and health care, and even started her own nursing school she was able to open this nursing school through St. Thomas Hospital in London in 1860 due to donations through the Nightingale Fund which started out um by as like a gratitude for everything she did in the war this was great because until this most nursing schools or education was built around religion so she went and like studied with nuns and studied with like sisters of different religions and stuff but It was great because this was a non-denominational, like, program. Lovely. Yeah, I mean, even though it was at St. Thomas Hospital, but, you know. (laughs) But, so, the Nightingale School of Nursing created a formal nursing education program that helped make nursing into a respectable career option for women that wanted to work outside of the home. Eventually, her program model was used around the world by public health institutions and many of her comp and statistical models are still used today making her the quote foundational philosopher of modern nursing thank you Britannica for that quote um, Florence did sadly pass away on Saturday August 13th 1910 at her home in London at the age of 90 she wow
1: was, yeah that is, is so old for that time yeah she's she was old that's like 120 (laughs) even (laughs) being bedridden
0: for like 11 years of her life essentially like she did so much and lived for Mm. so long so she was buried in her family plot in Hampshire even though her family was offered to have a funeral for her and like burial at Westminster Abbey but I guess she was very much like, no, I want to be with my family. Like, I don't like that, like, big showy stuff. Like, it's fine. Mm-hmm. So her family respected her wishes. She wrote tons of books and articles and pamphlets, some of which are still being printed today. Uh, she had a massive impact on the world of public health and nursing, which is why I love her and one of the reasons why I chose her. And also because I love nursing, it wasn't a second choice for me. (laughs) After graduating with my bachelor's, I was like, hmm, maybe I'll go back for nursing. But nah. Um, But she is truly awesome and has written over 150 books and other publications. She started her own nursing in midwifery school and curriculums. She truly brought the importance of sanitation and bedside manner to nursing and hospitals, which is huge. She modified the Hippocratic Oath for nursing, which is called the Nightingale Pledge, and is recited at pinning ceremonies at the end of nursing school. And two more fun facts before we're done with Florence. <laughs> um, you can actually listen to Florence Nightingale's voice online. Wow. So <laughs> it's That's crazy. cool. Yeah, so sadly we can't listen to it because only people in Europe can listen to it, but... um. <laughs> i found that one out the sad way i was like i'm gonna go listen um so her voice was recorded in an 1890 phonograph recording and it's stored in the british library sound archive but you can hear her say quote when i am no longer even a memory just a name i hope my voice may perpetuate the great work of my life god bless my dear old comrades of balaclava and bring them safe home Bring them safe to shore, Florence Nightingale. Of course, I did try to listen, and it's only available to people in Europe or the EU, it says online, but last time I checked, Brexit was happening, so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> rude. But um, the recording was actually taken from her home, and it was used to help get money for a re- relief fund for some of the veterans that she had worked with. I guess there was some big scandal that came out later in, like, 1890, and her and a few other people um, made these audio recordings in hopes of raising money for the veterans. And our final fun fact is that now every year on May 12th, Florence's birthday, we celebrate International Nurses Day. Lovely. Yeah. Thanks, Flo. Thanks, Flo. Thanks for being a badass lady nurse. And doing a whole bunch of stuff for people and, <laughs> and just dealing with overall them. being awesome yeah and just being like sorry fam I know you want me to be a stay at home lady of society but
1: <laughs> well really said F the patriarchy
0: she really did which is one of the best things ever so we
1: love that about her <laughs> well well done I learned a lot thanks all right, so now it's my turn. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> That's a hard act to follow because Flo was awesome and did a lot of stuff. But oh, I'm she gonna be talking about Rachel Carson. Yay! Do I don't know, know who she is. Rachel? Oh, perfect. I oh. was just about to ask <laughs> if you did. Well, my first line says, who is Rachel Carson? <laughs> who is she? <laughs> Rachel Carson was a writer and biologist whose writings and views led to a rich legacy, sparking the major environmental movement that started in the 1960s.
0: Yay, we love that.
1: Rachel Louise Carson was born on May 27, 1907, to Maria and Robert Carson in the rural community of Springdale, Pennsylvania. Growing up on a farm, Rachel learned to love and appreciate the natural, natural world from a very young age. She became a published author at age 10, writing for kids' magazines. <laughs> wow. So, really starting out right off, right off the gate. just <laughs> Yeah. Damn. Rachel graduated from high school in 1925 at the top of her class and went on to the Pennsylvania College for Women, which is now known as Chatham University. Originally, she went into college studying English, but then switched into a biology program and continued to write for the school newspaper to kind of fill that writing void. That's good. She graduated from Pennsylvania College for Women, Magna, Magna Cumulade, in 1929. Hmm. She then went on to do research at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in Massachusetts. Yay. And ultimately received her master's degree in zoology from Johns Hopkins University in 1932. Damn. And I mean, this is still a time where not many women went to college, so. No. (laughs) So that's pretty cool that she made it and got her master's in a science, which sciences are still maybe not as much anymore, but for a long, long time have been mostly male-dominated fields.
0: Yeah, now it's mostly dependent on which, like...
1: Style. Right, like, my field is mostly, tends to be mostly male-dominated, but it's kind of starting to trend the other other direction, which is nice. Yeah. But, anyway, she had intended to continue her education after that and get a PhD, but, unfortunately, the little thing called the Great Depression came along. Oof. And she was forced to leave Johns Hopkins in search of a full-time job to help support her family. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Damn Great Depression ruining everything.
1: (laughs) After leaving grad school, Rachel accepted a temporary position with the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries, which doesn't exist anymore as of 1940, but we'll get into that later. And she was writing scripts for an educational radio broadcast show called, quote, Romance Under the Waters. <laughs> yeah. The series of 52 seven-minute programs focused on aquatic life and was intended to generate public interest in fish biology and in the work of the Bureau. Cute. Then, yeah, isn't that awesome? I would totally listen to that. Same. It's like the podcasts I listen to now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the whole learning purpose- about- was yeah, that me it? learning about infectious diseases, going, this is sick. <laughs> exactly. It kind of, I mean, it was kind of the first thing like that. Yeah. Specifically focused on aquatic life. OG podcaster. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she then, in 1936, after outscoring all of the other applicants on the civil service exam, She was hired on full-time as a junior aquatic biologist with the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries as the second woman to ever be hired by the organization.
0: Yes.
1: Yes. that's pretty freaking cool. Yeah. Carson stayed in that position for 15 years, and in 1945 she was promoted to supervising a small writing staff, and then in 1949 she was promoted to editor-in-chief of all publications which is a lot. In 1940 the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries and there was like something called the Biological Bureau or something like that combined to form the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service which is what we still have today.
0: Gotcha yeah. So in
1: 1949 she was promoted to editor-in-chief of all U.S. Fish and Wildlife publications which is A lot. They put out a lot. Even back then, they put out a lot of material. (laughs) Yeah. So that's pretty badass. (laughs) (laughs) And then in 1952, Rachel made the decision to transition into writing full time, resigning from her government position. Oh. So her writing is really what she was famous for, even though she did a lot of good work as as a marine biologist. Mm Mm-hmm so a good chunk of her writing was in the form of articles for various newspapers magazines and journals however she did write five books and one of them is the most famous one that we'll go into but so her first book was under the sea wind in 1941 her second was the sea around us in 1951 and then the edge of the sea in 1955 and this is from the rachel carson site I can't remember I can look up the name of the lady that runs it but it'll all be in our sources document but quote in her books on the sea Carson wrote about geological discoveries from the submarine technology and underwater research of how islands were formed how currents change and merge how temperature affects sea life and how erosion impacts not just shorelines but salinity fish populations and tiny microorganisms Even if in the 1950s, Carson's ecological vision of the oceans shows her embrace of a larger environmental ethic which which could lead to the sustainability of nature's interactive and interdependent systems. Climate change, rising sea levels, melting Arctic glaciers, collapsing bird and animal populations, crumbling geological faults, all are part of Carson's work. But how, she wondered, would the educated public be kept informed of these challenges to life itself. What was the public's, quote, right to know, end quote. (laughs) Damn. Yeah, so that was a lot, but that's kind of the gist of what she wrote about in their first three books.
0: Also shows that, um, guys, climate change has been around for a while. This isn't something new.
1: (laughs) Yeah, she was very much, what you'll see, she was very much ahead of her time as far as, Like, the community ecology aspect of things, like how everything's interconnected. Yeah. um, Environmental ethics. And she, obviously, 1950 was really early for people to be talking about climate change. And she was kind of way ahead of the game there. Yeah. Yep. Whether or not people listen to her, that's that's another story. But... (laughs)
0: Considering where we are now... (laughs)
1: So now we get to talk about Silent Spring, which is her most famous, most influential book. It's pretty much, if you've heard the name Rachel Carson, that's probably how you know it. Hmm. So with the writing of Silent Spring in 1962, Rachel Carson became a social and environmental justice revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Disturbed by the use of synthetic cast... Uh, uh, synthetic chemical pesticides after World War II, Carson reluctantly changed her focus, obviously from ocean stuff, from marine life, in order to warn the public about the long-term effects of misusing pesticides. Mm -hmm. In Silent Spring, she challenged the practices of agricultural scientists and the government and called for a change in the way that humankind viewed the natural world. Damn. Carson was attacked by the chemical industry and some government and some in government as an alarmist, but courageously spoke out to remind us that we're all part of a vulnerable ecosystem, subject, subject to the same damage as the rest of the ecosystem. Oh, I want to be her friend. <laughs> Testifying before Congress in 1963, Carson called for new policies to protect human health and the environment. So yeah. <laughs> Silent Spring was really like the first of its kind as far as yeah. I'm sure there had been. So this whole time while she was writing her books, she was also submitting papers to journals and stuff like that. So yeah. her work was out there, but this was the first like real solid like book that people could buy at the store. <laughs> yeah. And it sold it has sold over 2 million copies. I'll
0: have to oh. read it when my Kindle gets
1: here. <laughs> I um listened to part of the audiobook this week.
0: Nice.
1: But it's like 11 hours of audiobook, even on like 1.5. So I didn't, obviously, didn't finish it. And it's, <laughs> as you expect, it's a good read, but it's kind of, I have trouble with audiobooks sometimes, especially if the narrator's voice is like really soothing. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have a hard time paying attention.
0: (laughs) Oh, no. That's, like, why I can't listen to, like, crazy scripted podcasts because I, like, start nodding off. (laughs) Oh, no.
1: I can (laughs) if I'm in the mood,
0: but. (laughs) Yeah, I have to, like, be doing a puzzle or something to listen.
1: Right. But I did enjoy the parts that I listened to, and I still have the audiobooks, so I'll hopefully listen to the rest of it. (laughs) (laughs) And there, she did have a fifth book, *The Sense of Wonder*, but that was published posthumously, pos, posthumously, after she died. <laughs> yep. And now we get to talk about her legacy. Yay! Yeah, I tried to keep it relatively short because I could talk about her for like, oh my gosh, for so long because there's so much stuff that came out of her work, but it's. Obviously, we don't want to be here forever, so... <laughs> you
0: know, I feel that. It was hard. There was, like, so many other things that Florence did that were, like, little that was, like,
1: oh, that's so cool. Oh, that's, that's cool. Great. Exactly. Like, there's this whole controversy more recently about Silent Spring mm-hmm. because people love to argue everything, but I was going to, like, really go into it, and I didn't because I was, like... <laughs> Anyway, too much unfortunately Rachel Carson only lived for about two years after her most impactful book was published Mm -hmm. on April 14th 1964 at the age of 56 Rachel Carson died after a battle with breast cancer leaving behind a rich legacy
0: Mm.
1: I know she was so young that's so sad imagine if she had lived to 90 like Flo I know. Isn't that crazy? I bet her and Bernie would have been good friends. Oh, I bet they would have. For sure. Oh, yeah. Most recognizably, Silent Spring launched the modern global environmental movement. The ecological interconnections between nature and human society that it described went far beyond the limited concerns of the conservation movement about conserving soils, forests, water, and other natural resources. Oh, also this is from, also from her website. Lovely. Um, a generation of Americans found their perspectives widened and their activism inspired by Carson's pow- powerful work. In launching the environmental movement, it also provoked the passage of the Clean Air Act of 1963, the Wilderness Act of 1964, the National Environmental Policy Act of 1969, now known as NEPA, the Clean Water Act, and the Endangered Species Act, both in 1972. And it also led to the establishment of the Environmental Protection Agency, also known as the EPA, in 1970. So that's essentially the information that came out. Through Silent Spring and like the shift in viewpoints as far as natural resources were concerned, essentially created the framework for environmental regulation in the US as it still remains today. We still have all of those acts are still
0: Yeah.
1: I was gonna say enacted, but that's a little repetitive. Yeah. (laughs) And obviously the EPA is still a thing. So Yeah. So I just think that's so crazy that just one work could leave behind such a, it's like a mushroom cloud of effect.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's also like, if she's made enough good points, then like, it might as well, like,
1: continue to be something
0: popular and like...
1: Absolutely. I learned about her in school, so... Yeah. As expected. (laughs) Um. Yeah,
0: and I mean... She's an important woman in history. And that's why we're discussing
1: her. (laughs) So I do. There is one more thing. I do want to say about. Her legacy. I guess there's a couple more things. (laughs) Um, The New Yorker released. A really lovely article called. How we should be remembering Rachel Carson. Mm -hmm. And it basically was about. How her entire life for the most part, up until 1962, when Silent Spring was released, um, was she was extremely passionate about marine life and marine biology and the ocean, which is why her first three books were about the ocean. And she did a really lot lot of good work in that space and how that is kind of lost when people talk about Rachel Carson because everything is so central around Silent Spring. Yeah. It was just a really, I'll link it in the um, sources document. I just thought it was a really interesting, lovely perspective that was like, don't forget, this is what her whole passion was before this book.
0: (laughs) Yeah. She did other things.
1: (laughs) Right, other really important things. It's just not the the big famous <laughs> thing it's that not you hear the about.
0: biggest thing she's known for. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And the majority of her work is centered around this other passion that she had. But anyway, posthumously The Sense of Wonder, like I said before, was published in 1965. And during her life, she received countless awards for her work. I could list them, but that would be boring. And in 1980, she posthumously received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian honor in the United States. So that's pretty cool. There are like a million things named after her, as expected. Tons of books about her. And there is a wildlife, a national wildlife refuge named after her in Maine, which I used to visit for school quite a bit. Oh, where in Maine? It's in Brunswick. Oh. Brunswick, I believe. All right. I do want to read us, just to end here, I want to read this segment from that New Yorker article, because it wasn't just about... Her love for the ocean. It was also about some other aspects of her life. That people don't really know about. Ooh. But Rachel Carson. Was not married or anything. Didn't have kids. She did adopt. Aww. One of her. I think it was a nephew. After it was orphaned. Aww. But anyway. Quote. from the New Yorker. writing by the edge of the sea. Rachel Carson fell in love. Hmm. <laughs> she met Dorothy Freeman in 1953 on the island in Maine where Carson built her cottage and where Freeman's family had summered for years. Oh. Carson was 46, Freeman 55. Freeman was married with a grown son. When she and Carson weren't together, they maintained a breathless, passionate correspondence. Quote, why do I keep your letters? Carson wrote to Freeman that winter. Why? Why? Because I love you. <laughs> Carson kept her favorite letters under her pillow. Quote, I love you beyond expression, Freeman wrote to Carson. My love is boundless as the sea. Both women were concerned about what might become of their letters. So in a single envelope, they often enclosed two letters, one to be read to family, Carson to her mother, Freeman to her husband, and one to be read privately. And likely destined for the, quote, strong box, which was their code for letters to be destroyed. did you put them in the strong box, Carson would ask Freeman? Quote, if not, please do. Later, while Carson was preparing her papers, which she would pledged to give to Yale, Freeman read about how the papers of the writer Dorothy Thompson recently opened contain revelations about her relationships with women. Freeman wrote to Carson, quote, dear, please use the strong box quickly end quote, warning that their letters could have meanings to people who were looking for ideas. They didn't destroy all of them. And those that survive were edited by Freeman's granddaughter and published in a book in 1995. Oh, so yeah, she did have a secret little lesbian romance going on. That's so wholesome. So wholesome. And so as expected, there's people out there like articles out there that say they were just friends (laughs) but clearly based on their letters they were not just friends but yeah I just decided to add that as kind of a little story at the end because obviously it makes no like it doesn't matter
0: (laughs) yeah it doesn't matter but it's cute that there's like
1: exactly it's adorable and I I can't remember the name of the book, but I will put it in our um, sources document. But, yeah, I thought that would be nice to add as a little story because I didn't want it to take away from her legacy and all of her amazing works. But, you know, I can't have an episode without a little bit of drama. So Oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> also, like, it's nice to see some of these people as like actual people like all of the stuff like
1: right instead his life of, and like, of keeping them. them up on a pedestal for everything
0: yeah and that's the thing is like they were real people too like right he died pretty young and lived through a time where that wasn't super accepted at all like mm-hmm. they had to keep them in a safe box like <laughs> right
1: and thank goodness they didn't destroy all of them. Nobody would ever truly know.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the letters are just so sweet that that's awesome.
1: Yeah. Love Lovely. Well, happy, happy Women's History Month.
0: Yeah. Hasle- have, blah. blah, blah.
1: <laughs> we both really messed that one up. <laughs> 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 well, happy Women's History Month. Just like ha, la, la. <laughs> ha la, la. We hope you had a lovely month. Every month is Women's History Month in our eyes. Yep.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, what I think is funny is I have a Women's History Museum puzzle that I got for Christmas that I did. And it's still okay. sitting on the dining room table. Um, <laughs> How convenient. Yeah, but I was looking at it and neither of us did women that were on this puzzle.
1: Well, actually, that makes me happy because maybe people will learn some things from our episode. Yeah.
0: I think also the women on this puzzle, like, I honestly didn't know much about, and I thought about looking up one of them, but
1: then I was like, ah, oh, Florence Nightingale's great, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, now you can still look them up. Yeah. So, anyway, stay tuned next Monday and every Monday for new episodes. You
0: can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.
1: We're on Instagram at Monday Mornings Pod, on Twitter at Monday Mornings P, and we have a Facebook page.
0: If you have questions or topics that you'd like to have covered in a future episode, you can also email us at Monday at gmail.com.
1: Or just DM us. We yeah. Those two. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. Like, please. write whatever you want in the review, it doesn't have to be anything crazy.
0: Yeah, like, I don't know. Please tell us your favorite cheese or bear or um, woman or anything. I don't yeah. care. For we'll real. give you a sticker.
1: Or even episode, yeah, episode suggestions can go in the, in the reviews. And like Maddie said, we'll send you a sticker. So yeah. Do it. Do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, as always, start your Monday mornings the right way with Maddie and Morgan.
1: Yeah.